Amen. Thank you, Doyle, for that. As he said, we're going to continue our series on the Sermon on the Mount today, but I wanted to introduce you to the beatitude that we're looking at as we enter into worship, at least partially. It's in Matthew 5, 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So we'll examine the first part a little later, but it's this second part here. It's the promise that's attached to this one that draws my attention, that I want to draw our attention to as we uh, enter into this worship a little more deeply. This is an incredible, borderline unbelievable promise that Jesus has made. And perhaps it's lost on us because we're used to the vocabulary and the language, but it would not have been lost on those first disciples, on anyone that was following him that was Jewish. This would have stuck out. This would have been borderline heretical, like inappropriate, this promise. See, there was this well-known Jewish story that uh, was about an interaction between one of their great leaders, Moses, and God. It's in Exodus 33, and it's where Moses says, now, he's talking to God, show me your glory. And the Lord responded by saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim my name, Yahweh, in front of you, in your presence. But he said, you cannot see my face. Well, why not? Why, why can't I see your face? Because no one may see me and live. This was... Everyone knew this. This wouldn't have just been known. Little Jewish boys would have memorized this story. And this idea was deeply embedded in the DNA of the Hebrews, in the Jews, in everyone. Even fringe members of this race, the Jewish people. They knew it was a foregone conclusion that the law says that no one can see God and live. So here comes Jesus this very different teacher that's got their attention and he attaches a promise that if they didn't walk away offended or if they didn't walk away discrediting this guy as not knowing what he's talking about because of what everyone knows in the law and they actually were intrigued enough to think that maybe there was some truth to this, this promise among all the promises in the Beatitudes would have set their hearts on fire. It would have made it clear that things are changing if they had any bit of faith that this was true. The promise that the people will see God in the law, the lawgiver, Moses, couldn't see God, let alone them. And so there's a whole, there's a whole lot of things I started reflecting that I would love to see in my life. Some I have, but I'd still like to see them again as many times as I can. I would like to see the world flying up at me at 120 miles per hour after I've just jumped from an airplane. I would love to see mountains as far as the eyes can see from the top of one that I just successfully climbed. I'd like to see the Holy Land. I'd like to go and walk where Jesus walked so that I could see what he saw when he was here on earth. I'd love to see that. My kids, my adult kids, I I would love to see my kids stay fully alive in their hearts every day of their lives, making a difference for Christ in their own unique way for the rest of their lives and in love with doing so. Love to see that. I'd love among us to see the kingdom advance through this community 
I have seen that, but I'd like to see it more in ways that in my most creative day, I couldn't come up with how we do it because it's our corporate creativity God is using and redeeming and advancing his kingdom in. And maybe at the top of this list, most unlikely thing, I'd settle, I'd love to see a cheeseburger that's as good as the one at Blue Sky, but that is as healthy as they say a salad is. There's a lot of things I'd like to see, glorious things. But more than any of that, all of that, I want to see God. Deeply embedded in my heart, because of where my life has gone, I want to see God more than anything. In a way, it explains everything I do. And, and it explains all of my other desires on my best days. And the reason I want to see God, I want to see God because the way Jesus said it, what the Jews probably would have perceived is that to see God would mean that they are being allowed in his presence, right? You're not going to see someone that you're not around, and so that would mean something to them. Even today, you can get this. Too many Christians spend too much of their life wondering if they've been good enough to see God when it's all over. So to see him means that we would be allowed into his presence. To see God would mean that we would be awestruck by his beauty and his glory. You know, there's lots of people, me included, that go to those fancy art museums and art exhibits and look at the masterpieces and just don't appreciate it. We don't see the beauty and the glory. They kind of all look the same. We might see it in something else. We're made different in that way, but I don't think that's going to be a problem with God. The sight of God will penetrate down and call forth the deepest needs and desires in every human being, no matter what their personal taste is in beauty temporarily. To see God, maybe most urgently, would be to be comforted and relieved from troubles. I get this from David in Psalm 69, verse 17. He says, he's praying and he says, do not hide your face from your servant. Answer me quickly, for I am in trouble. He instinctively knew that seeing God's face would provide relief and comfort and deliverance from his troubles. So this morning, are you longing to see God? Are there troubles that you come into this room with that maybe are pulling your attention? This morning, whatever else you're longing for, whatever it is, whatever else you're wanting in life, I want you just for the next hour to abandon it. Just abandon that. Just, just for an hour. And let's come together in unity and let's desire God. Let's long to see him together. Let's long to know him more. And whether you want to focus on the future aspect of that and, and what it will be like in heaven or whether you want to focus on your need for it now, that it be here a little bit more like it is in heaven, here on earth now, or a little bit of both. Let's ask God to open our eyes and give us what was not allowed for Moses, but that Jesus came down and said is possible. Now, before we uh, finish up with this beatitude, I got a couple of things I just want to let you know about. First, 
on that list of nations of all those people that just love seeing all those people doing that accelerator event and not just accelerating their own growth by going, but the kingdoms as well. Um, a nation, you need to add a nation to that prayer list because after Doyle goes with the team that's going to the Philippines, most of them will come home, but Doyle's going to continue around the globe to India and visit our missionary there. And I'm particularly grateful for that because I can't get into India anymore. They've, they've got my number. They know I'm a Christian. They don't want me coming. They don't know Doyle's yet, or his Christianity is not as vital as in, in <laughs> as intimidating to India as, as other. No, I'm kidding. They just don't know yet. So yeah, Craig and I both have been denied access to India. So I'm grateful for Doyle making that. And then he's going to just continue on around the world and come on home. So be praying for him. That's a trip of a lifetime, but that'll be a long and tiring and exciting trip. The other thing is today we have arrived at the last day of our third iteration of the Can We Talk About This class. So tonight will be the last Um, of this version of class that we've been saying, yes, we can talk about what the Bible says about women's role in the church. So I wanted to let you know that now that we are finishing up that class, as promised, our elders will begin praying and discerning some next steps as a church family. And as part of that discernment, still not going to be in any hurry at all, okay? We want to really be um, discerning and, and take our time on this, but we're there, they are asking for your feedback in the form of a survey. So a few things. This survey is for all the Southwest family. Whether you've participated in the study or not, I hope you have, but if you haven't, we still want you to take it. So if you're a member here, we want to hear from you. Second, this survey will be available upon the conclusion of our class tonight. Okay, so a couple of iterations um, are two ways that you can make Uh, take this survey. One is digitally, so every member will be getting an email that will connect you to this survey, and that's how we prefer you to do it. It's just easier to combine all the results. That's one of the ways we want to process this, but there will also be paper copies, and those will be available in the foyer beginning tonight, and you have a two-week window within which to do this survey, either digitally or in paper. If you fill down paper, you can just put your paper in that in the kiosk back there, or you can drop it by the office or to any of us, and that'll be fine as well. So remember, spring break is within this two weeks. And so if you've got a trip for spring break, you're going to want to make plans to get this done. We really want to hear from you. Now, what will the elders do with the survey results? They will consider them. They will acknowledge them and weigh them heavily as they move forward. And that's simply the answer. You remember our leadership has a leadership process, a way, a system of governance that involves the plurality of leaders, all having a voice and being a part of that. And so that is how they will uh, still make decisions on how we move forward. But so the survey is not a vote. It's a survey. It's a, it's a pulling in of, of a piece of their discerning process. But while it's not a vote, it's not an election, they truly want to hear your thoughtful and prayerful feedback. And it will be very influential. I'm telling you, they are eager to, uh, to see how you're feeling about this and what you're thinking about this and where your convictions are uh, as a result of having studied with them. So some of you have said, oh, I trust the elders implicitly. You know, I'm, I, don't, I don't need a voice. I don't need to be heard. You know, I don't want to be heard. Well, they appreciate your trust, but they want to hear your voice. So this survey will take you about 20 minutes. So you'll need to set up a minute 
and uh, get on your computer preferably, but if it's paper, that's fine too, and uh, participate in that survey. And I really encourage you, even if you haven't come, the first seven studies, come tonight as we finish up. And, um, and I think you'll be blessed. It's been great to be together in that context. And tonight's the last night again. So let me just reconnect to this beatitude by asking you this. Do you? Do you see God? If not, like if you question that, you wonder, oh, I'm not sure. And I think that's totally normal, but if we take this beatitude, just this beatitude at face value, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, then that begs the question, doesn't it? Well, what's purity of heart? What is, if, if purity of heart is the blessing, the, the fortunate life, the, the privileged life, the blessed life, and it's a blessing because the pure in heart see God, then what is pure of heart? So purity in, is the Greek word, I like it, it's katharos. It's where we get our English word catharsis, right? Some people, it's cathartic to go shopping, or it's cathartic to eat unhealthy, or it's, you know, whatever, it's cathartic, and we kind of get what that is, it's to purge out all impurities is what it really means. So one use of this, Barclay tells me, was for corn or wheat. It's when corn that's been harvested or wheat and it's been sifted and re-sifted and washed and sifted and to where nothing is in there. It's clean, it's pure. There's no more chaff in there. It's been used, he says, for an army which might have been purged of soldiers that are, don't want to be there. They're not willing or they're, they're not able. Maybe they're not competent soldiers. Maybe they're not courageous soldiers to where if you have a pure army, it is a first-class force of fighting men that are good at what they do. It's also used to describe milk that was thick and, and undiluted with water or metal for like a sword that was completely purified and purged of any contaminants or, or alloys that didn't belong there for, for that pure, strong sword, purity. Basically, this means what it sounds like to us. And it's nice for there occasionally to be a word in Scripture that means what it sounds like to us. So we know what purity is. So what's purity of heart? When I first hear that term, purity of heart, I think I join a lot of people's initial thoughts about that. We, we consider, okay, if I have a pure heart, then I have a heart and a life that's without sin, right? It's been purified of the contamination that sin is. It's, even our thoughts maybe have been purified to where we don't have those dark, sinful thoughts. And so we sometimes... At least I did. When I first read this as a young man and student, that's what I thought it meant. But that would move us right back to that works-based salvation, wouldn't it? Not the one that John just had us celebrate and remember. It would be, I need to be sinless enough. Not just sinless enough. I need to be pure. My thoughts need to be cleansed enough. And not just cleansed enough, but they need to be pure. I need to be 
pure of sin or I'm not going to see God. And we can all safely admit that when we hear see God, we typically think of heaven. And that's appropriate. It is inclusive of that. I think it's more than that. And so, fortunately, we know by reading the gospel, by reading the whole story of Scripture, by reading the, just, just observing the mission of Jesus and what he did on that cross and why he did it, we know that sin does not disqualify us from heaven. That's not what he's saying here. The gospel's literally designed for sinners. Like, literally. Your sin qualifies you for what Jesus came and did. Praise God. We're all qualified. So, cleaning up the sin of your life, both in thoughts and deeds, while that's great work and good work, and I believe leads you to the most abundant life available here on earth in the meantime. And while I think it's a byproduct of what purity of heart actually is, purity of heart does not mean sinlessness. What it means is single-minded, unpolluted devotion to God. It means a desire for God that's not just above all other things, it has become the thing. There's an old uh, book that I read many years ago by Soren Kierkegaard. I don't recommend it. It's really hard reading. But I got it for the title. And the title tells you what the book is about. He doesn't just do a book on purity of heart. He just goes ahead and puts what's in the contents right there on the cover. It's called Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. That's what it is. It's to desire one thing. It's to set your eyes on one thing and then your whole life become defined by that. It's the kind of devotion that began being appropriate once humanity started realizing that there's only one God, right? Way back, even in Scripture, back in the time of Abraham, and we don't know where it ended, but even they didn't believe there was only one God. There was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. But that's, that's why they called him that, because that's their God, and there's a lot of other gods, and Abraham, Isaac, and Israel thought that, that they have the best God, that this is the great God, the most powerful God, but it took a while before, even in Scripture, you start to see it hone in as you read the narrative, this idea that there's, there's just one. It's even in that most famous of passages in Deuteronomy, the Shema, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. To us, that, we don't even notice that, but they, what? There's only one? And then it follows with the next phrase. So love the Lord your God with all your heart. Purity of heart is when every desire that you have is explained by your ultimate desire to love God. The uh, New Interpreter's Bible is a commentary that I read a lot when I'm studying. Really, I do recommend it. It's really good. But it had this quote that I just want to read to you about that. Monotheism requires that there be something big enough and good enough to merit one's whole devotion, rather than the functional polytheism of parceling oneself out to a number of loyalties. I just, you see why I wanted to quote that? That's such a concise description of what we do sometimes. 
I've never connected it to belief in, to the belief in one God. If there are truly multiple gods, that's what polytheism is, it's the belief in multiple gods, then of course you're going to owe quarter to all of them. So which one are you? What best describes you? Do you have one big, giant loyalty that explains your life and every other part of it? Or... Do you have a number of loyalties, all of which get parcels of your life and energy and attention? One of them's Jesus, but there's some others. That's what's being talked about here. This single-mindedness, this one devotion to this one God big enough and good enough to merit that. It all corresponds once you have these lenses with so much of Scripture Later in Matthew, when Jesus is talking about what the kingdom is like, and there's this merchant looking for pearls, but he finds one of immense value, and so he sells everything to buy that one. Purity of heart is willing one thing. It's Jesus explaining the one thing that the very religious, very devoted Jew Lacked in Mark 10 when he said, I, f- I followed all those rules. I, I take my faith very seriously. And he says, one thing you lack, and that's give up everything. That's, that's the one thing you lack. Give up everything, then, then you've got it. You've got the treasure. It's Jesus correcting Martha in her house when Mary and Martha are both in there and Martha is wor- working like is expected of of, of women at the time and, and she comes in and Martha is sitting at his feet and she's perturbed because this is not normal and she gets upset and rebukes Jesus. To say, Tell Mar- Martha to get in here and just the way he rebukes her so kindly but firmly. Martha, Martha, you're worried and upset about many things. One thing's needed. Purity of heart is to will one thing. It's Paul explaining all that he does he did a lot of stuff by the one thing he does in Philippians 3 one thing I do forgetting everything that's behind me and press forward to the treasure to press forward to Christ Jesus I want to be like this not I want to be purity of heart is to will one thing And I believe our ability to see God increases in direct proportion to our purity of heart. So let me be clear. Purity of heart is not sinlessness. Purity of heart is unmixed motives. It's devoted attentiveness. It's never flipping the off switch spiritually. You don't have any category in your life where that happens. It's the prioritization of God, not as the highest thing. That's what this confronts. I used to think I need to make God my highest priority. The priority is what it is. He's the priority. It's no divided allegiances to multiple gods. So it could be restated maybe like this. Blessed is the person whose motives are always unmixed, singular, and undistracted. With God as their aim, for that person will see God. 
It's not sinlessness, but it sounds about as difficult, doesn't it? And so this took me to... Well, then who can see God? If that's what it takes, then who can see God? And God, I feel like he just took me right to that story, and I went and looked it up and reread it in Matthew 19, when the disciples were being taught by Jesus with an equally difficult, idealistic, true teaching... And they say to him, who then can be saved? I mean, if that's what it takes, who then can see God? Who then can be saved? I think we need to take to heart Jesus' reply there. He says, with men, you're right, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You are not on your own in this. That's why you can believe in it. That's why you can hope in it. That's why you can aim for it. So, probably be good to hear these words of God relayed through Jeremiah. He says this. This first starts with this great promise. You will call upon me. This is God talking. You will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. It's an incredible offer. You come pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I think we get purity of heart by giving all of our heart, such as it is, and move his direction. And I believe and have experienced that he is more eager for me to make that move than I am, and he responds. And he moves our direction. And if you'll just come to him and seek him and pray for him he says i'll come to you i'll listen you will find me with you it's impossible if you're gonna white knuckle it and i'm gonna i'm gonna not be distracted ever again i'm not gonna have other priorities infiltrate and usurp my priority of god ever again yep you all that's gonna do is make you tired It'll also make you possibly feel not good enough and condemned. Just bad stuff comes from that. Instead, I think we should do what Jeremiah suggests. That's where we start. We call on him. I wish I could give you like a three-step process. <laughs> but, and there are probably some other things I could add here, but I think we start and end by going to him and asking him, for it for him to clean our heart to purify our heart that famous psalm we've got a song about it psalm 5110 create in me a pure heart O god that's what i want to invite you to do is begin today maybe it's been a long time since you've prayed that prayer begin i'm not talking about singing the song you can sing the song but i want you to pray this prayer today and never stop because when you talk to him he will turn and he will listen and if you seek him with what you got he will purify your heart and give you more this is spiritual work this is spiritual faith so as our elders and ministers get up and move around the room here and if you want to just be to pray with someone this prayer that's what they're making this move for we can start right now with this song.
that we're going to sing together. Let's stand and let's call on God.